Lighthouse Live and Advancing Vibrant Communities present The Da Vinci Code Unraveled. You and I, Robert, we have observed history. We are in history now. We are in the middle of a war, one that's been going on forever, to protect the secret so powerful that if revealed, it would devastate the very foundations of mankind. Welcome to Lighthouse Live, the radio voice of advancing vibrant communities. Our mission is to motivate believers to move out from the four walls of the church to personally serve the needs of their neighborhoods. Get ready for a no-holds-barred, honest look at the Christian lifestyle the way Christ commanded it to be. All that and more coming right up here on Lighthouse Live. And good evening to you, Pastor Mike Douglas here, along with our producer and co-host Elaine Harlan. Uh, welcome to Lighthouse Live as it beams around the globe yes. on the World Wide Web. So great to have you with us. Thank you so much for uh, being with us. And uh, Elaine, this uh, a very special edition of Lighthouse Live as we look at... Um, uh, an anomaly out there, really, that's making a lot of money. And a lot of noise some people, and a, a lot, lot of, of noise and a lot of stuff. It's called the Da Vinci yes. Code. And unless uh, you've been uh, horizontal and at room temperature, I, <laughs> I assume that you've probably heard about this. And tonight, Elaine, we're going to take a look at uh, the Da Vinci Code Unraveled, casting the light of truth on many subjects that are contained within the book and the movie. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, we've got some great guests with us tonight. We are so excited, and we are going to be introducing to you uh, David Broyles, who has been here before with us, and also Dan and Lori Frick, some very well-respected men and women in this community. And we will be addressing a lot of these things, as Pastor Mike said. But first, we're going to uh, take a listen to our earlier visit with Dr. Aubrey McGann, and we'll be right back on Lighthouse Live. Well, Dr. Aubrey McGann, welcome to Lighthouse Live. Great to have you with us. And Aubrey, uh, I've known you for about 10 years now, I think, since moving to Modesto. And so great to have you with us. You've been here in the community a, a long time and are entrenched here uh, physically and spiritually mm-hmm. as well. And we have a great opportunity now to talk about the Da Vinci Code. What are some of the things, Aubrey, that, that you think we ought to be looking at and be uh, being able to talk about uh, as we uh, as we see the Da Vinci Code earn lots of money and, and hit the theaters uh, in America? Well, it just goes to show that you don't have to be truthful in order to make a lot of money. <laughs> and um, that's uh, one of the things that um, is quite uh, common in our society today. Mm-hmm that some of the wealthiest people are some who have um, a very low opinion of um, or value for the truth. Mm. Um, But The Da Vinci Code is a book that, you know, was written by Dan Brown. And there are so many errors in the book that it's it's unbelievable. One hardly knows where to start Mm. in discussing the errors. In fact, I was thinking 
on the way over here that if we were to take all the errors out of the book, then the book would look somewhat like um, Swiss cheese. You know, <laughs> a lot of they, holes in it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> with so many holes. In fact, uh, right at the very beginning, one doesn't have to go beyond page one to see blatant uh, and flagrant error. Uh, on the f- cover of the book, it says The Da Vinci Code, a novel. On the first page, it starts with the word fact in bold mm. print, mm. saying that the contents of this book are actually fact, when indeed they are not. They're anything but fact. I'll give you a couple of um, interesting things that uh, Dan Brown has done in his book. You know, what? when one writes about fictional historical subjects, an unwritten code is that you leave the facts of history as fact. Mm. You don't change the facts. Right. You can right. put in all the, the creative uh, thoughts and ideas and imaginations and so forth of the author, but the facts remain the same. Well, Dan Brown has not done that. What he has done is to play fast and loose with the facts and have actually changed the facts of history and uh, woven it in um, so very um, carefully, uh, so, so, so very skillfully into his novel that when one reads it, if one doesn't know the facts of history, one may tend to get the impression that he or she is reading history. And that's the way it actually happened. And I think that's one of the great dangers of this book, um, The Da Vinci Code. Uh, For example, he speaks about um, the Priory of Sion, which is supposed to be an organization that was uh, founded in about 1099. That was a European secret society to guard the great secrets that we don't see in the Gospels, that, but that the church, and I think this is a, primarily an assault on the Roman Catholic Church. Mm, I don't yeah, know right. um, whether he has something against the Catholic Church or not, or it's just that that's the only church with which he's pretty much acquainted. But um, this secret society was supposed to be guarding these great secrets, and one of which, of course, we'll discuss in a, a, a this evening, but... It has to do with the fact that Jesus was secretly married mm-hmm. and uh, to Mary Magdalene, and they had a daughter whose name was Sarah, and so on. Of course, there really was no Priory of Sion in 1099 at all. In fact, the Priory of Sion was founded in the 1950s in France by a political um, radical, and he was also a very strange man and had been arrested for fraud and so forth. And um, he himself said at one time that he was actually the embodiment, the blood, you know, of, of Jesus Christ, mm. and that he was had been specially ordained for this particular task and so forth. A very, very strange man. He, he, he created this Priory of Sion in his mind, actually said that there were other people involved in this organization. Went, <laughs> uh, you know, people like Leonardo himself and other great men of history, and there's absolutely no truth to it at all. Such falsehood in it's this. All fiction. In your teachings, Aubrey, uh, if you could encapsulate the main points that you cover uh, as you go about instructing the truth about the Da Vinci Code. Okay, um, there are four areas. There, there are a lot of other areas, but so there are four areas. that um, uh, that I think are some of the most egregious and 
and bold-faced errors. And the, the one is that he says some of the Gospels that Constantine attempted to eradicate managed to survive. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1950s, hidden in a cave near Quamran in the Judean Desert. That's on page 234 of his book. Well, the fact is that Constantine was not involved in any attempt to eradicate any Gospels at all. The Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, were not discovered until 1947 and contained no Gospels, nor, for that matter, any reference to Jesus at all. Mm. So that's just absolutely from the figment of his own imagination. imagination. Um, another statement that he makes is that the Bible, as we know it today, was collated by the pagan Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, page 232 in his book. Well, the fact is that Constantine was a professing Christian, not a pagan. We don't know whether he was a born-again believer, as we understand it in the scriptures, but he was a professing Christian. In fact, he could be um, described as the founder of Roman Catholicism, because it was when he made the pronouncement, uh, the edict, that everyone in the Roman kingdom was to become a Christian. That's how what we know today as the Roman church actually came into being. He had a Christian funeral, and then he had nothing at all to do with the collating of the Bible. The Old Testament, of course, had been collated and compiled long before Christ was born. In fact, some of the New Testament scriptures were already being referred to as scripture before the end of the first century. In fact, in the writings of um, Peter, he speaks of Paul's writings mm. as being scriptures. Right. So that's long before um, Constantine came into being. A third error is that Jesus was not thought to be divine until the 4th century AD. Now, the fact is that all through the Gospels and all through the Epistles, Jesus is referred to clearly as being divine, deity. John 1, verses 1 and 14, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And if we go to the original language, it's even more emphatic than in the English language. It says, And God was the Word. Mm -hmm. And God was the Word. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, it tells us Jesus, who came in flesh, was none other than the Word, who was God, or God was the Word. In Mark's Gospel, it says that Jesus at his trial, he kept silent, said nothing, and the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Who everybody knew, who was Jewish, referring to the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus said, I am. Interesting that he used that phrase, I am, like right. the great I am, yes. that God said concerning himself. In fact, it probably was Jesus in his um, in a Christology, in his pre-incarnate days, saying, I am, speaking to Moses from the burning bush. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Why? Because he was claiming to be God, divine. Luke speaks about the same thing. Jesus speaking, uh, reading from the Old Testament scriptures in the synagogue, he closes 
the scroll, sits down and says, Today, these scriptures are being fulfilled. In other words, I am the one of whom the scriptures spoke. John 20, Jesus said to Thomas after his resurrection, Reach your finger here, look at my hands, reach your hand here, put it into my side, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Mm. And Jesus did not rebuke him. Now when the apostles, when people attempted to worship the apostles or pray to them, they said, don't do it. We are merely men like you are. Don't worship us. But when Thomas called Jesus God, Jesus did not deny that. He is the Messiah. There's one fourth error. Jesus was secretly married to Mary Magdalene. They had a child together. Now, it's interesting. None of the books of the Bible make reference to Jesus being married. None of them mention that he he had a child. None of them. Also, it's interesting to notice that not even the Gnostic Gospels, on which Dan Brown leans so heavily, the so-called Gnostic Gospels, which were written like 200 years (laughs) after Christ, um, none of them mentioned Jesus being married. You'd have thought that certainly it was so that they would have put that in there because they were trying to to disown the um, the very uh, divinity of Christ. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and his mother was standing there, he looked at John and he, or he looked at his mother first and said, Mother, behold your son, pointing to John, and then he said, Son, behold your mother. Now, don't you think because Mary Magdalene was standing there also, that if he made uh, preparations, uh, plans for caring for his mother, that he would have made plans to care for his wife. He would have done that if he had been married. Those are just a few of the points that I think um, makes this book such a, a very sad on the one hand and dangerous book on the other. Absolutely. The research and the homework was not done on no, the part he's a brilliant, of the author. He's a brilliant writer of um, spine-tingling um, <laughs> mystery novels. But he's a very, very sloppy researcher. Friends, you're listening to a special edition of Lighthouse Live. Pastor Mike Douglas with you, along with Elaine Harlan. And uh, Elaine, again, a topic of a lot of water cooler conversations and uh, a lot of uh, conversations over uh, lattes at Starbucks mm-hmm. and a hundred other mm-hmm. coffee places. Tonight we have the uh, great honor, and you've already heard our, our friend Dr. Aubrey McGann, a pastor a long time here in the Modesto area, also joining t- us tonight, Pastor J- Dave Broyles and also Dan and Lori Frick, who are going to... Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about their research uh, into uh, the Da Vinci Code and uh, what the truth really is about many of the so-called facts that Dan Brown has uh, has given us. And, uh, you know, Elaine, Christ said it would be like this, yes. didn't he? Yes. I mean, all of this is not a surprise. This is no. just another uh, salvo from the enemy. And uh, as we uh, plow through tonight, uh, what we're looking for are ways that you can take the information that you receive this evening mm-hmm. and be able to talk uh, intelligently and with authority about some of the errors in the Da Vinci Code. Absolutely, Mike. And you know, maybe a lot of our listeners are kind of scratching their head and, and saying, can Opie and Forrest Gump <laughs> really be a part of this whole division? 
Vinci Code thing. And, you know, I, we know we've heard that comment. And, and so we're glad to be uh, around the, the roundtable here at Lighthouse Live with, with great friends, well-respected people in this community to address and to talk about some of these issues. And, and Dr. Aubrey said something there in his little um, comment about the facts. And I had to think about just the facts, man, just the facts. And, and we need to keep it that way. And, and Dave, Jack got, Webb wouldn't have made that movie, you know. <laughs> he I wouldn't mean, have sounded yeah, like so. that either. But anyway, <laughs> we've got so much ground to cover here, and, and and this is going to be a great time together. And we want to talk with each one, and we'll just interact and, and just allow the spirit to lead us. Uh, Dave, maybe you know you can speak to the importance of this issue uh, for those of us to know what we believe and why we believe it. And I know you did some teaching in your church as well. Well, first of all, I want to say it's it's great to be here, and I am thankful for people like Dan and, and Lori that have done such a great job on research themselves and have conveyed that research to their church. They were telling me before we began how that they were teaching their young people, and I just wish every church would take it upon themselves to do that kind of thing. Um, it is important. It's, it's important to know what you believe and why you believe it because God says it's important. Mm, yes. We're told in Scripture that we are to be ready always to give an answer of the reason of the hope that lies within us with meekness and with respect and uh, the Apostle Jude tells us that we are to contend earnestly or put up a strong defense earnestly for the faith Mm -hmm. that was once and for all delivered to the saints so it's important because God says it's important and one of the things that disturbs me is that uh, sometimes Christians we sit around on our laurels and all we do really is sit around being right Mm -hmm. and we're not really doing anything about it and, uh, you know, my hope is built on no- nothing less than Schofield's notes and righteousness. You know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, we, we think we know what we believe until something like this comes up. Right. right. You know, and then it's everybody's scrambling to find the answers to all of these things. Well, the answers are there. They've always been there. And uh, just like Dan said before the program began, you know, this is nothing new. I mean, the, right. the church has faced things like this for 2,000 years. And a lot of these things were really answered by Oregon and some of the early church fathers in the, in the second, third century. So it's, it's really nothing new. It's very important that we know what we believe and why we believe it and use it not something to criticize somebody for, but to use it as a springboard into presenting the gospel to people. That's so important. Um, I, you know, I, for one, am shocked that Opie would make a movie like this myself. <laughs> I am, too. I, I love somebody asked, some, money. Yeah, somebody, somebody, asked me if I th- somebody asked me if I thought Ron Howard and Tom Hanks had an agenda, and I said, yes, they wanted to make money. Yeah, absolutely. They wanted to make a movie. Yes, I, ha- yes. I don't believe they intentionally wanted to hurt the Christian church. Now, I believe Dan Brown had an agenda, however. I yeah. think uh, he somehow he has a bone to pick with the Roman Catholic Church. Which we ought to be praying for these people, hadn't we? Absolutely. Yes, yes. You know, Dave, I think your point is, is so well uh, taken that this is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so easy for us in the Christian community to uh, have a knee-jerk reaction, and people are used to, a lot of non-believers are used to the Christian community banging the Bible up and down, getting red in the face, going on uh, television with gold couches and and batting uh, funny-looking eyebrows and, and getting upset <laughs> about something red in the face. You know, about time that we respond in uh, kind and compassion and intelligent way with love to say, hey, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. 
you know, here's here's something interesting that maybe you didn't know. I think this is a, a wonderful opportunity. Again, what the evil one may have meant for uh, one thing, I think uh, we have the opportunity to turn around and, and uh, just make a great time for uh, shedding the, the light of truth on, on what the Bible's all about. Absolutely. And Dan and Lori, we're just thrilled that you could be here. And I know, Dan, you guys, both of you, have done a lot of research. And Dan, you want to <laughs> share with us how you came to the uh, research in the history of the church, the early, early church? Well, I um, wound up on a discussion forum last fall that this topic came up, and, uh, you know, I was raised in the church, uh, wasn't always in it like I should have been, but when I started hearing some of the questions and the challenges that were coming from skeptical non-believers, uh, boy, I went scrambling right away because, uh, as Josh McDowell said, the answers to the Da Vinci Code are not found in the Bible. They're found in early church history. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the devil's pretty smart. You know, he's not going to take on the Bible head on. And basically what he said is, uh, you know, I don't doubt, Elaine, but that what you say is in the Bible is in there and it supports your beliefs. The problem here is you collated the evidence. You stacked the deck. You only put the stuff in there. And, and that's, of course, what Dan Brown said in his book is, you know, there were over 80 Gospels out there. Now, I don't know where he got that number because there's not 80, but there's somewhere around 20 to 25 where the word gospel is attached to some reference to some writing. Maybe it's just a little fragment here and there. But the bottom line to it, I think uh, there's there's a great uh, professor at Dallas Seminary Institute in, in Dallas, Texas, Daryl Bach, and, and he really summed it up and, and, and faced the challenge properly to Christians, and that is that... Uh, This is not new, but the scholarly work that the skeptics have done to phrase the questions the way they have Mm. is a much greater Mm. challenge than there's ever been. And, Laurie, you and I spent a lot of time looking at it, and, you know, they did. There was was some pretty good challenges coming there, and... uh, I think there are some some basic issues with this. I'm uh, an English teacher, and so when I read the book, I'm looking for protagonists and antagonists and plot <laughs> and setting and all of that kind of stuff. And the first thing that struck me was that this is a book of fiction. If you go buy it in the bookstore, you're going to find it under fiction. Mm-hmm. And yet the very first page starts with in large print the word fact right right and to me as as a a language arts teacher um dan brown really crosses the line there he can write a fiction book Mm -hmm. that's fine but then don't start the fiction book saying that what you will find in it is in it is fact um as um, our, our first inter- interviewee mentioned, and Paul Myers does a great job of talking about how fiction comes together. Fiction, particularly historical fiction, is written against the backdrop of the truth of history. Um, the characters are fictitious, their problems, their issues, they're fictitious, and, you know, bless the author, make it however fictitious you wish it to be but do not change the facts of history. What Dan Brown did, and I really use this quote from Paul Meyer, uh, he compared it to Dan Brown writing a book about World War II and saying that the Nazis won. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. wrong. It's bad history. 
and it's not real. The other thing that I found very interesting in this book was all good books have a protagonist and an antagonist. And the message or the agenda or the theme, whatever you wish to call that the author wants to get across, is generally put in the mouths of the protagonist, the person, the character in the story that you are sympathetic with. Ironically, in the Da Vinci Code, the information that is so bizarre, he puts in the mouths of the two antagonists in the story, (laughs) the two most psychologically corrupt characters in the story, and they're the mouths that he puts this Mm. message into. And the first time I looked at this, I said to my husband, Dan, I said, you know, I don't get this. Mm -hmm. This is different than any other kind of fiction that I have seen. Generally, if if an author has an agenda, they put it, they wrap it in a way that is going to be appealing to the reader. And these two characters in the story are not appealing at all. That's right. And uh, I so appreciate your input there, Lori. And, you know, Pastor Mike was able to gather some clips together. And I think that this one is uh, appropriate for now. Let's share this and we'll be back with more. Demons, omens, codes, monks, Da Vinci. You asked what would be worth killing for. Witness the biggest cover-up in human history. You're saying all this is real? Real enough to kill for now, isn't that interesting? Real enough to kill for. Yeah. And yet, as as we've just talked about, the uh, all of Dan Brown's, his, his whole thesis really dies there on the front page when he really uh, puts his, his novel, his fiction, in, into his historical context. And obviously, it misses the point. Have any of you read any of other uh, any of his other novels? Anybody? No. no. I'd be interested to know, and, and perhaps some of you in the audience there can, can tell us a little bit. I'd be interested to know how the Da Vinci Code stacks up against some of his other works. You know, you mentioned kind of this reversal of the protagonist and the antagonist. Right. And uh, it'd be interesting to know uh, if, if that matches up with uh, a pattern with, with him or not. Well, he, if, it, if characters are, are metaphors for their message, the character teabing Mm-hmm. destroys people and is ultimately destroyed in the end. Is that a message that mm. a reader wants to adopt? Right. Yeah. You know, there was a time when we were going through this, and, and, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and I, and I turned to Laurie, and I said, you know, I would love to have Dan Brown sitting across from the table with me right now in a casual setting and say, Dan, were you really serious here? <laughs> I mean, there's so, yeah, yeah, there's yeah, so yeah. many. Fly- but you know what? This has played... So well, I was I was just doing some research this morning, and according to the latest sales numbers, over 48 million people have purchased this book. Yes. It is by far the best-selling adult work of fiction in the history of the mm. publication business. Now, right. why is that? Exactly. Well, it's interesting that the book that preceded it, and help me with the name of it, I don't remember what Angels it was. Angels and Demons. Angels and Demons. Thank you. Uh, you know, did not do so well. Right, and and uh, yet something about the way Dan Brown approached it, something about the marketing, uh, just had something in it that that opened things up. I'd be interested to know, uh, Dave, as uh, as you're pastoring people, what type of uh, reactions have you received? Are people questioning in churches now? Are they searching for uh, answers, or are some of them even wondering? Well, gee, you know, how do we know? Maybe was Jesus married? Well, hopefully we, we try to keep our people pretty well informed, and uh, I have found 
I, when I preached on it, not this Sunday, but last Sunday, um, I asked, I, get, I took a survey and I asked in both services, how many of you have read the Da Vinci Code? First service, nobody had read it. Second service, I think four people raised their hand. Uh, and that's a pretty typical response in, mm-hmm. in a Christian setting. If you were to do that, uh, say, at the Moose Lodge or uh, someplace that, uh, you know, isn't, isn't Christian-oriented, right. uh, one out of five people in the United States have read the Da Vinci Code, which is pretty, that's one-fifth of the population. Wow. So that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the sales that Dan just talked about, you know, pretty well, you know, bears that out. You know, I mean, if 48 million people have bought the book, you know how much, you know, Dan Brown's laughing all the way to the bank. Mm-hmm. But the problem, you know, with the Da Vinci Code, and it's, and it's like... Uh, uh, my sister here said about in the you know when you open the book it's got the big word fact there and it you know talks about the priori of scion and and uh, opus day and all of these other things and uh, the the problem is is the way he put this together you know there's really three areas that he attacks uh, when it comes to the Christian Church he attacks the deity of Christ which is the very foundation of the Christian Church Amen. he attacks the accuracy of Scripture and he attacks the uh, purity of the Christian faith and says that the Christian faith is not nothing anything new but was de- derived from pagan religions which is absolutely ridiculous mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. uh, you know for, for somebody to, to to try to get away with something like that you know it just it's almost it's almost laughable you know and and it's just a, it's, it's a sad thing because there are people that are on the fringes of the christian faith that are take that have taken this to heart and mm-hmm. and have, and have really questioned it you know wow can this really be true well it's like i think dan said you know, you're not going to solve this by reading the Bible. You're going to have to get into church history. Mm. You're going to have to find out what, uh, you know, what the early Christians really believed. You know, the, the you know, TV makes a statement uh, just incredulously it says uh, that Jesus was not called the Son of God until the Council of Nicaea yeah. in 325 A.D. Yeah. That is the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard. All you have to do, you don't even have to go to the Bible. All you got to do is go to the writings of the early church fathers, like uh, like Justin Martyr or Tertullian mm-hmm. or Origen mm-hmm. or any of those yeah. talked about the deity of Christ. Even the Heliot papers that were written within uh, 50 AD, which were not scripture, but it did tell what early Christians believed uh, about Jesus Christ. Even Tacitus, the, the, early, the Roman historian that lived in the first century, Josephus, the Jewish historian, Pliny the Younger, all of them referred uh, to Christ as, as uh, the God that Christians worship. And, and thankfully, there was just a church that was dug up in Megiddo just a few months ago that had a big insignia on it that said, dedicated to Jesus Christ, the mm. God. Amen. And so, uh, you know, you can't, you can't get any more authoritative than that outside, outside of the Bible. You know, a good point here about, and, and you mentioned it too, uh, uh, Dan, just a few moments ago, that you only have to look back at history. Now, lest our complete... Um, Knowledge of history is from Indiana Jones. Let's deal with this issue uh, right up front. Let's listen to this clip. The great fresco by Leonardo da Vinci. My dear, if you would close your eyes. Lee, save us the parlor tricks. You asked for my help, I recall. Allow no man his indulgences. Now, mademoiselle, where is Jesus sitting? In the middle. Good. He and his disciples are breaking bread. And what drink? Wine. He drank wine. Did. And one final question. How many wine glasses are there on the table? One. The Holy Grail. Open your eyes. No single cup. No chalice. Well, that's a bit strange, isn't it? 
considering both the Bible and standard Grail legends, celebrate this moment as the definitive arrival of the Holy Grail? Hmm. Now, how uh, about that? <laughs> let's, let's deal with this now. What's this, okay. you know, the Holy Grail? Obviously, uh, our friends are defined uh, by, by some as the, uh, the cup. Uh, that uh, the Christ uh, used. Let, let's talk a little bit about uh, that that falsehood, and and uh, of course they're they're substituting. They're, they're they're saying the Holy Grail was fact, but it's not what you think it is. It's something else. Let's deal with the fact that the Holy Grail isn't even fact. Uh, that that one was a lot of fun because first mm-hmm. of all, the Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci was painted in the 1500s. That's right, uh, 1542 or anyway. I'm not sure about the date, but anyway, early 1500s. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what he used for the for the model there, and maybe you know, maybe there was somebody off camera back there that took a, a Polaroid picture back there while they were having dinner that night. I don't know, <laughs> uh, so that he knew what to paint there. But you know. The, for, for years, you know, we've thought of the cup as being the Holy Grail because that contains the blood of Jesus. And, you know, the, supposedly that Joseph of Arimathea caught Jesus' blood on, on the cross and all that. So the idea that there's some other thing here. Now, of course, what Dan Brown puts forth and where I mean, there's been a number of books written by this uh, that claim that the the Holy Grail was really Mary Magdalene's womb, which contained the daughter Sarah that Jesus and Mary had sponsored while they were married, and that was the story that wasn't told. And so Mary Magdalene is really the whole Holy Grail, and Dan Brown and and others before him. I mean, Dan Brown did not invent this story. In fact, you, you may have heard of the lawsuit that was settled just a, a month or so before the movie. Interesting how that lawsuit came out. Just what timing, huh? Timing out. is everything, yeah. isn't it? Back to, back to Opian Forest making a few bucks here. <laughs> I wonder if the judges get a residual off of those sales. Oh, I don't know. He, 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 not he that I'm saying anything about our judicial system. Probably got That's a another program. But that was Go in down. England. And- <laughs> And the, and the judge actually gave the verdict in code. <laughs> yes, that's right. And that's what's exactly this going right. to mean to the Academy Awards? Yeah, that, was, that was the Benjamin code, you know, the Benjamin Franklin. But the, the, oh, the, the, the interesting point about that, we, we, we did some, some research on that. And, and uh, you know, the, the fact that that, that that image to the left of Jesus, as you look at it, is supposed to be Mary Magdalene instead of John. Uh, Dr. Paul Meyer, who we referenced earlier, had a great little math problem there. He said, anybody that that wants to can prove that to be wrong, but they have to be able to count to 14. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's, if, that's, if that's Mary Magdalene instead of Jesus, then where's John? Because there's only 13 mm-hmm. images in that picture. Mm-hmm. Now... Judas was there. He's supposedly on the left side. So anyway, that that was that was totally bogus. But we had a great time with that. And uh, and the other thing that I think is interesting about that is that Leonardo da Vinci himself, in his notes, noted that that was John next to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, if Dan Brown has really inside information, I don't know where he gets that. But Leonardo da Vinci himself said that that was an image of. John. The imaginations yeah. just run rampant, don't they, yeah. Lori? Well, yes. But, you know, the key to all that is why did it work? Hmm. It worked because people are biblically and historically illiterate. That's right. Yeah. And and they like uh, they like a, a controversy. They like 
you know they yeah. like those things a, a conspiracy yes. and and the fact that uh, and the fact that he brings out that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married and this is a big secret and the secret is the, you know the church tried to suppress the secret of trying to so that they could suppress women in the church all these years because you know their view of womanhood and and I got to thinking about that you know there is no church on the face of the earth like the Roman Catholic Church that venerates a woman more than they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mary, the mother of Jesus, they venerate her. How can anyone say that they were trying to suppress women? That's true, Dave. That's and how that happen. So. Can you imagine tabloids if they existed during that time? Oh. What the tabloids might be. Well, yeah, the Jerusalem what, Gazette. We now call some of them Gnostic Gospels. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. there we go. There we go. Speak Very to them. The Jerusalem yes. Inquirer. Or the, I can see entertainment tonight, you know, back around... Uh, right. uh, Reality TV? Yeah, two or, two or three years. Yeah, but absolutely. You know, there's a, there's, a, real, there's a, a really more important thing here, and that is, and, and I forget who said it, I think it might have been Josh McDowell, says, mm-hmm. because the Da Vinci Code is wrong does not make Christianity right. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so what is the answer to the, you know, challenge? You know, yes. all of the challenges that they present, you know, that, uh, well, the Gospels were... Uh, there were 80 gospels or over 80 gospels being considered as if there was a church panel that picked and you know chose what was going to be which had nothing you know um what he doesn't say and what and what uh, a lot of people don't know is that the new testament as we know it was completed before the end of the first century the yes. gospels of matthew mark luke and john were completed within 60 years of the life or, or the death burial and resurrection of christ and uh so they, you know, it wasn't, uh, it was, they were widely, the, the, the New Testament documents uh, uh, were widely circulated among the churches long before the first century uh, ended. And uh, they, they accepted them because they were written, number one, by the apostles. They were apostolics. It's one of the questions they ask. Is it apostolic? Mm. Was it written by an apostle or was it written by someone who was a friend of an apostle who knew Jesus uh, in the flesh? The answer, that's yes, number one. Uh, was, was it accurate? And in other words, uh, you know, was was the, the, was it historically accurate? And and yes, we bore that out. We you know we've got over twenty five thousand manuscripts of the New Testament alone that stretch back almost to the uh, the early part of the second century, which is incredible, more than any other book of antiquity. No 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 book of antiquity even comes close with the manuscript evidence of the New Testament. You know, and wh- when they ask, was it ancient? In other words, was it written early enough? To so that uh, wisdom or uh, legend would would not have a chance to come into the picture, and absolutely, if you read First Corinthians fifteen one through six, you have the earliest creed of the New Testament uh, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen of Cephas, then out of the twelve. That was a creed that was thought to have been uh, quoted or uh, you know recited every every early every Lord's Day morning. Uh, during the first century, and it was written, it was thought to have been written between six and eight years of the resurrection of Christ. No chance of any legend to form around during that uh, that quick of time. You know, and we were speaking of history just a few moments ago, and how this would just ignite a new passion and a desire among our young people, and old as well, but particularly young people. Lori, don't you think young people are hungry to learn of the history and get to the truth? Oh, absolutely. And um, I, as as an educator, am very concerned about the fact that we are not preparing our young people with information and with the history of our Bible. Mm. Um, as a as a I grew up in the church, but um, down in Ripon in the Christian Reformed Church. And every Wednesday we had catechism classes and we learned the doctrine of the church. 
I don't know very many churches that do that anymore. We have get-togethers with young people, and they have time that they spend together and socialize. But Lots of entertainment. Yeah. yeah. As for the, the doctrines and the study of the church, um, one of the things that was interesting, the, the first session that Dan and I did, there were some, some young people there, and a couple of the girls um, told told their mom, that was really interesting. We really yes, learned some stuff. Yes. Children love to learn. Um, and I, I think as Christians, we need to take advantage of that and teach them. But then we need to know ourselves Absolute, as well. There, Absolutely. The and, uh, you know, as, uh, as we look back in time, let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. I mean, there seemed to be some wisdom there, right? Yep. <laughs> in terms of training, sit, training our talk, children. Yes. All the visit, time. Talk. They were educating. Absolutely. And, and we have, uh, I think, abdicated that in the Christian church. We've abdicated that role to the pastor. Mm-hmm. In education, we've abdicated that role to the teacher. We've abdicated our responsibilities, I think, as parents. And really, we all the time. We and need to be as a public school educator, abdicating that responsibility to the public school is a very dangerous thing to do. Amen. And doesn't it make your job harder as well? It limits mm. considerably what I can do as an educator. Mm. Um, the emphasis in education is more, well, I can't really say where it is, but I can tell you where it isn't. It isn't on the student and the well-being of the student. It's on making sure that we are being politically correct, that we are making sure diversity issues are met, that tolerance issues are met. And, oh, by the way, if Johnny learns to read, that would be nice, too. It's an ancillary benefit, but not the focus. Lori, how can you encourage the body of Christ, those of us who are parents and grandparents, to counter that that you just said and to really come alongside our young people, the the new generations coming up? The families and the church need to step up and become their child's first teachers. Amen. Amen. Amen to that. Friends listening around the globe uh, as we speak to this special broadcast on the Da Vinci Code tonight, we're visiting with Dave Broyles and Dan and Lori Frick. And we're going to be back with lots more right after a special message here from ABC right after this. Deep needs, deep hurts, spreading far beyond the government's ability to help. Children, single moms and dads, the elderly, disabled, the homeless. Yet, thousands of resources that can meet those needs are sitting right now in the pews and seats of our churches. The challenge? Activating those resources and connecting them with the people in need. We have a proven solution, advancing vibrant communities. We bridge the gap. We connect people and churches with opportunities to serve the needs of their neighbors. Pure, simple, proven effective, advancing vibrant communities. What's our motivation? Jesus' command in Matthew 22:39 to love your neighbor as yourself. The church at large has a biblical mandate to serve the needs of the community. Advancing Vibrant Communities researches those needs, then finds volunteers with the skills and passions to meet those needs. The very first story that Mike told about ABC involves serving one of my church members whose needs I could not meet within my own community. And in that moment, God humbled me and asked me to open my heart and really listen. And as I saw the setup of the database, I realized that AVC is a wonderful partner with my own congregation. It helps us be more effective. This organization comes along and says, I'll do a lot of the groundwork. 
and we'll discover the needs and then those folks in your congregation who desire to be a part and who have these skills can volunteer. AVC partners with over 80 community and government agencies to help meet the needs of the city. We network with organizations like Habitat for Humanity, the American Red Cross, Salvation Army, the Area Agency on Aging, the School District, and the Police Department. Habitat and ABC is a perfect match in that we both have common missions of helping people get out of the four walls of the church, getting out into the community and helping others. AVC serves volunteers by finding ways for them to help others. AVC serves the needy through volunteer efforts with love, grace, mercy, and compassion. AVC serves churches by augmenting efforts to reach out and meet the needs of their neighbors. AVC serves businesses by helping create healthy neighborhoods, by connecting employees with opportunities to volunteer, and by providing opportunities to donate goods and services to legitimate needs in the community. You know, some of us can do donate a little money, some a little time, some one or the other or both. It really touched my heart that these strangers were interested in me and what I needed in my life. You know, it's not only hearing it, but it's seeing them, and it's being there in person and seeing the, the need that they have and hopefully being able to do something about it. I will tell you, as you know, your chief of police in the city of Modesto, we need your help in the community making a difference. Volunteer, I know we can put you to work. And I, I promise you, if you get involved, you'll feel better. You'll be happier. How can we partner with you to meet the needs of our city? We ask you to consider monthly financial support and to help recruit more volunteers. Advancing Vibrant Communities. Faith in action. Pure, simple, proven effective. Carrying out the biblical mandate to love our neighbors as ourselves. Thank you. And we're back with you on Lighthouse Live. Pastor Mike, Elaine, and our special guest doing a special show tonight on the Da Vinci Code. Pastor Dave Broyles and Dan and Lori Frick. And it's great to have you listening wherever you may happen to be uh, listening as you can uh, download this show into your iPods and you can click onto our website uh, at any time, 24 hours a day. at www.vibrantcommunities.org. Click on to the daily uh, update portion of the website, and uh, just the link is right there. Click on and turn your speakers on. Of course, remember that, and you're in. We're discussing tonight addressing the questions and the validity, the the importance of all that surrounds the Da Vinci Code and uh, the craze that it's caused. And I know we were going to talk a little bit about the priory of Sion, and Dan, did you want to address that just a little bit? Oh, that one was fun. Uh, the Priory of Sion was supposedly uh, an organization that was started in 1099 to uh, guard the secret of Jesus and Mary Magdalene being married and that there was this bloodline that still exists today all the way down to 2006 right here in June. And uh, there's actually some documents that were discovered in 1956 in the French National Museum that indeed were very detailed, had all the genealogy. I mean, the documents documents are right there. You can look at them. There's only one problem. The documents were admitted by one of the perpetrators to be a total fraud. The Priory of Sion, as as Dr. McGann mentioned earlier, uh, was invented by a guy named Pierre Plantard, uh, and, and one of our 
people that we interviewed uh, made a good little funny out of that. These these documents were planted in the French <laughs> National Museum by a man named Plantard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> funny. Funny stuff. So the documents are real. There's actual documents, but they're totally fraudulent. And, and this, this man was an admitted... Uh, con artist and 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 been con- convicted of fraud and and one of his perpetrators in fact the guy who actually helped him put together the genealogy admitted in a court of law uh that they were a fraud and in fact the british broadcasting company in 1991 did a a special on that in which they admitted that uh it never got played in the united states <laughs> but uh, prior to sign is a total fraud there's right now there's there was four members and they uh, they said they dissolved the whole thing in 1981 it was never any more than that. Well, they ought to get some residuals off the book, I <laughs> <You> think. think <laughs> <laughs> you know, friends, uh, we've been talking about some of the talking points that uh, we can use as uh, some of that water cooler talk may crop up. Uh, but let's talk about the big picture. We were talking about this during the break just a little bit. Mm-hmm. The Da Vinci Code is not something to be feared. You know, in our in our response to it, this is an opportunity. And let's just talk about the opportunity that we have, and maybe the way that uh, we in the Christian community ought to be uh, ought to be approaching this. Uh, Dave, you want to give us some of your impressions? Well, I think you know, as as uh, as Christians, sometimes I, I think that they they do just what you said a while ago, and I like the way you said that about it. we have a knee jerk reaction yeah. sometimes when this happens, and we. You know, somebody brings up something like this, you know, and and we get all hot and bothered about it, and jump up and down and scream and yell, and right. and not know what we're really talking about, and and uh, and I think one of the reasons we get so upset sometimes when something like this happens is uh, we don't have the answers, and we're mm. frustrated, mm-hmm. you know. But the, the the answers are out there. There's more information uh, today uh, about the church about about Christ, about theology, probably in, and more accessible than at any other time in the history uh, of the world, and yet we are taking less advantage of it than at any other time uh, in the history. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and yeah. I, I just think that we are, you know, in, in the church, the church is sometimes is so, uh, unfortunately, is biblically illiterate, and and, and uh, it, it behooves to, to do what what Dan and Lori have done. I just, he's a pastor's dream. I mean, <laughs> you know, to have somebody like that teaching in your church that, know, you know, that knows what they're talking about. But, to, you know, uh, as far as if somebody brings up something, do you think that Jesus and Mary were married? Or what about this about Jesus not being called the Son of God until the, you know, the best way to answer that, first of all, is to say, you know what, I'm glad you asked that because that's a really good question. Mm-hmm. And then start in and give them, yes. uh, you know, give them verse by verse, not from the Bible. Even. You don't have to use the Bible, just use history. And, and, and I think one of the things that people need to remember, if they don't remember anything else about this broadcast, mm-hmm. it's remember this. If somebody brings that up, not one reputable historicist or theologian has ever put his stamp of approval on the Da Vinci Code. Amen. <laughs> he will not do that because it's so ridiculous and it would ruin his reputation. You know, so, but it's it's a springboard into the gospel. Absolutely. If you want to use it and Dan, we were also talking during the break about the issue of Mary Magdalene being a prostitute. Please address that. You know, that's a that's a great lead, Elaine, because. The question we've been asked in many cases, it's been brought up all over. Hey, this is just a book of fiction. Mm-hmm. Relax already, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Don't worry about it. You know, but, you know, we've all heard the line if you tell a lie often enough, people are going to believe it. Well, mm-hmm. I'm sure that there's a lot of our listeners right now and people around the world that believe that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Well, there's absolutely no biblical reference for that, but that 
the facts behind that show why that's an important thing to, to deal with. The, that started from an Easter speech that Pope Gregory the Eighth, or that Pope Gregory the Great gave in 591, in which we don't know whether, whether he confused the the sinful woman in Luke seven with Mary Magdalene's introduction in Luke eight, or if he was just saying, well, you know, if Jesus could forgive a prostitute, he could forgive anybody. But but that was where it was tied to, and we know that's the case. We know that's the origin of it. That it's not biblically oriented because in 1969 the Catholic Church issued a corrective saying, uh, you know, Pope Gregory kind of made a mistake way back there. He kind of led everybody to believe this, and it's not true. And I hope Mary Magdalene's relatives heard about that. Cleared <laughs> that all up. But, um, there, but, was, know, there was why, a bloodline there, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's why we have to be knowledgeable, and we, and we, have, right. to, we have to right. walk the talk. You know, Amen. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, a you know, tormented German philosopher way back when, one of his Christian friends was trying to convert him, and he said, if you want me to believe in your Redeemer, you need to act more redeemed. Mm. Amen. And, and we are on this quest for truth, aren't we? And we should be. And speaking of that, we have something special for you, and we'll be back right after this. Understanding our past determines actively our ability to understand the present. So, how do we sift truth from belief? How do we write our own histories, personally or culturally, and thereby define ourselves? How do we penetrate years, centuries of historical distortion to find original truth? Tonight, this will be our quest. And I hope we are on a quest for truth, don't you? Well, and that's what uh, the purpose of tonight's program is, friends, is Lighthouse Live and Advancing Vibrant Communities takes you through a brief tour of the Da Vinci Code. And uh, our thanks uh, to Dr. Aubrey McGann, uh, Pastor Dave Broyles, Dan and Lori Frick for just some wonderful research and uh, the benefit of some studies that, that you have done. As uh, as we conclude tonight's broadcast, let's go around the room and uh, just give us some of your impressions, things that you would like people to walk away from uh, uh, or, or walk away with. I know, um, I'm sorry, Lori, that's not particularly grammatical, but uh, <laughs> I haven't had my fifth cup of coffee yet today, so it's not working too well. What would you like him to walk away with after listening to tonight's broadcast? Let's start with uh, Pastor Dave Broyles. Well, I would just, I would encourage people, you know, first of all, n- never be afraid of truth. Right. Um, you know, truth is going to be truth no matter what, no matter who says what. And so I would encourage people, first of all, don't believe everything you read at face value. You know, I don't just take something somebody says, you know, and, and you read sometimes like like in a novel or whatever. And you, you read, uh, you know, when you look at that and you wow, look at all of the footnotes this guy has. Man, he's done a lot of research. And then you check out the sources that he uses and you find out they're as squirrely as he was, <laughs> you know. And, 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 you know, so, you know, don't take we don't even take the Bible at face value. We, the Bible is not without evidence. That's the thing, you know. And yes. and so don't don't believe everything you read. You know, it's just like all the stuff that comes over the internet you know bill gates wants to give you money you know <laughs> dr dobson pleads that the ffa is going to take off religious broadcasting all that kind of stuff is you know people believe it and they send it on you know it's a waste of time so don't waste your time by just believing anything that comes along check out the facts be a good Berean. Lori, how about you i think for um one of the things that is is so awesome about our god is his ability to take something like this that starts out as oh 
this is horrible, and turn it into something that is a tremendous opportunity for us as Christians to say those things to our friends. Well, yeah, let's let's discuss that. Um, thank goodness people want to discuss Jesus. Yes. For a long time, they it's hard to get anybody to discuss that. Mm, yeah. um, yeah, it's a cool thing to do. Huh? Absolutely. Yeah. So God's given us an awesome opportunity. He's taken a trick that the devil has has played and turned it around and um as as quite frankly tired as i am of the da vinci code mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i don't want christians to stop at this this right. is an open door let's okay. keep moving Amen. you know what's, what's what's interesting about this and it just struck me is the book came out what in 2003 yes, yeah it's been out for what ago. three years ago mm-hmm. yeah. and i guess it says something about our mentality as a culture it's not till it's made a movie that we uh, ascribe some uh, some interest in it but uh, anyway it's been out there for a while and again friends nothing uh, to fear again we uh, consider it an no, opportunity to share truth and 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 we haven't been given a spirit of timidity have we we want to do this in love and and compassion don't Amen. we let, yes. let me take one quick follow-up on that one, Elaine. Uh, you know, the, there was a major change in the key scene in the movie that was quite different from the book. That change was brought about in large part because Christians did get motivated, and we said, enough already, we're not going to yes, stand for that. Yes. Uh, my, my main point coming out of this is we need to learn to tell the story better. Mm. We're not going to convince anybody by going back and saying, well, this book was written here and not over there. That, that kind of stuff isn't going to be very convincing. The most convincing proof for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the influence that that single event had on people around there. That changed the lives of people 180 degrees. Hmm. Now, you can talk about all kinds of other things, but if you just go back and think about the way human nature works, people aren't going to die for a lie. That's right. And that was the the genesis of this this great truth and this great religion, and that's why we have what we have today was because that story is the greatest story ever told. Amen. Amen. You know, friends, this brings uh, brings us back to a verse that... We quote often here on Lighthouse Live and Advancing Vibrant Communities from First Peter 2.12. No matter what we say, you know, here's, here's the key. Be careful how you live among your unbelieving neighbors. Even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will believe and give honor to God when he comes to judge the world. Isn't that powerful? we got to yeah. walk our talk awesome. out there with this. Amen. Right? Dan and Lori Frick and Dave Broyles, thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of Lighthouse Live, all about the Da Vinci Code and uncovering the truth. Dear friends listening at home, wherever you may be, thank you for tuning in. Until next time, may God continue to bless you as you reach out and love your neighbors as you love yourselves. Good night. You brought me to you.